Hanging chads, rancor, recounts, and voter fraud. Sounds like we're having another election. Don't worry, America, the Republic will stand. Professor Edward Foley from the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. This is a big, big week. We've got a presidential election taking place. And the United States, as many people observed, is uh, at a time of incredible political polarization. And you know, people on both sides of the aisle are, uh, both sides of the political aisle, that is, are nervous and worried about the future. And there's a lot invested and the stakes are very high in this election cycle. And so many project the election will be contested or too close to call on election night. The political parties are already ramped up. They're prepped for uh, anticipating any legal challenges that might come their way. And we're setting records for mail-in ballots. And there are a lot of questions about the integrity of our voting process. But take heart, America. We'll get through it. And to help us with the uncertainties and to provide a little context, because knowledge is power, we welcome our guest, Professor Edward Foley from the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Welcome to the show, sir. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Absolutely. No, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know we're, we're uh, time is ticking down. We're getting really close to election night here. But, you know, you just wrote a book on this. And before we get into our topic today, I wanted to, to go over that. You wrote a new book on the electoral college voting system. So just briefly, if you could tell us about that. Sure. Well, what I found was that we, as a country, don't really understand our own system because our electoral college is the second version. It was adopted after the election of 1800, which was really contentious, to uh, have a new vision. And it's a vision based on majority rule, because the first version was based on a hope for consensus. George Washington was the model originally, and he was supposed to be a figure above party politics, above partisanship. Well, that didn't happen. We got a two-party conflict almost immediately. And so the second version, which is in the 12th Amendment, is built for two-party competition, it was the Federalists versus the Jeffersonians, and the Jeffersonians won eventually in 1800. And they said, if it's going to be a fight between two parties, at least the majority party should prevail. Wow. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. So yeah, I agree with you. I think a lot of people don't know about the, how the electoral college works. And you know, there's that debate between uh, you know the popular vote versus electoral college. But you know, historically over time, and you know, I did some research for our topic today, I counted about six key periods of, you know, contested elections or contentious election cycles. And so is that about right by your count? Is it like four or is it six? I saw two different accounts. Yeah, I I think it depends on how you define contested. I mean, there have been some like 1800 where there was hugely contested, but it wasn't about individual ballots. You mentioned hanging chads like in Florida in 2000. That's one kind of contest. Another kind of contest could be over the machinery of the Electoral College itself. And 1800 was a version of that. Okay, well, today we're going to cover five of those. So, audience, we uh, I had a little pregame with the professor, and we decided just for the sake of time and also for relevance, we decided to boil this down to five of these past historical events. And so, professor, let me just walk the audience through briefly, real quick. So, we're going to be talking about five key periods in our election history. So, the first date along our stops there is uh, 1800. The next will be 1824, and of course, real important, 1876. And then we'll transition into modern times, 1960 and 2000. So, Professor, uh, a couple of questions I'd like to get answered for each one of these eras is, you know, what happened? You know, what was key and pivotal about that election cycle? And then how did the country find its way out of the stalemate? So why don't we start with 1800? And of course, this is the election between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Right. It ends up in a tie between Jefferson and Burr, but they're running mates. They're actually members of the same political party. 
And John Adams was the lead candidate of the opposite party. He was actually the incumbent president. So it was really supposed to be a fight between Jefferson and Adams. But as your question pointed out, the whole machinery was confused and ended up with a tie between two running mates. Now, that could have been solved if Aaron Burr had the graciousness to step aside and say, well, obviously, everybody wants Thomas Jefferson at the top of the ticket. But Aaron Burr was Aaron Burr, you know, pretty treacherous guy, ends up killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel, and he's willing <laughs> to try to fight for the presidency, and it leads to a real mess. You know, one of the things I thought was so fascinating was that at that time, uh, whoever what the runner-up was who did not win the election became the vice president. And of course, that practice was put to an end with the 12th Amendment. But, you know, in some ways, I wonder if that would uh, curb some of the contentiousness of the election cycle if, hey, we didn't win, but at least our guy or gal is number two. So... But anyway, let, let's uh, let's transition to 1824. Now, I thought this was interesting because I, I learned a lot about the migration of the different parties. And so uh, this one, there was a four-way tie, which is uh, unthinkable today. We had John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, William Crawford, and Andrew Jackson. So, you know, what happened there and how did they break up the gridlock? Yeah, so that's the key point that it was a uh, not just two candidates, but four. And that meant nobody had a majority of the Electoral College. And as I mentioned, the 12th Amendment was designed to have a majority winner. So when that didn't happen, they needed to use this backup procedure that was left over from the original Constitution. And the backup means that the House of Representatives picks the president from the top three candidates, but each state has just one vote in the House of Representatives. And John Quincy Adams prevails because of the way the House votes. And Andrew Jackson is livid because he thought he should have gotten it. And then he comes back and defeats John Quincy Adams in the next election. But it was uh, it just shows the kind of weakness of the backup procedure there. Uh, I want to spend a little more time on 1876 here coming up. And so this is obviously on the tail end of the Civil War. There's still some difficulties in the Southern states. And so a compromise was struck to break the tie here. But unfortunately, that tie sent civil rights back almost a century. So let's talk about 1876 and the election race between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Yes, this, I would say, is the most important disputed election in American history. And the one that is worrisome to think about if that we have a dispute this year, would it replicate some features of that? So some of the key facts were the Senate was controlled by one political party, the Republicans, and wanted Hayes to win. The U.S. House of Representatives was controlled by the other party, the Democrats, and wanted Tilden to win. And when Congress is divided in that way, you can have a stalemate. That's what happened because several states sent conflicting submissions from the states to Congress. One submission for Hayes, the other one for Tilden, and Congress deadlocked. And as you said, the only way to resolve it was this compromise, which, um, you know, the Republicans got the White House, but they sort of lost their soul because they had been the party of civil rights and voting rights, and yet abandoned that commitment in exchange for getting the White House again. And it led to a century of denial of civil rights in the South until we had, you know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, so the abandonment, that, that came from removing federal troops in the South. They were trying to, you know, basically rebuild the South, trying to enforce the new law of the land and equality. And they ended up removing the federal troops and the powers that be there, you know, took over. So, yeah, it represented kind of a dark time, a very dark time in history, actually. So... 
Well, let's uh, right. let's fast forward to 1960, and so this is, of course, the race between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon and the so-called Daily Machine. So, tell us about the Daily Machine, and then how ultimately that dispute was resolved. Yeah, so Mayor Daley was the mayor of Chicago, and on election night, you know, uh, Vice President then Vice President Nixon was thinking about whether or not to challenge the result. But he would have had to challenge both Illinois and Texas in order to prevail in the Electoral College, because then you, you've got to get to that magic number of a majority, which is now 270 electoral votes. And Nixon ultimately walked away from a recount or a challenge because he didn't think he could win in both states. You know, even if he could have gotten a fair recount in Illinois, despite you know the Daily Machine, he didn't think he had a chance of getting a fair recount in Texas because Lyndon Johnson was on the ballot as John Kennedy's running mate, and Lyndon Johnson had a you know pretty strong hold on the Texas government at the time. So it's an example of where a concession by a candidate can make the difference because that you know pulled the plug on any kind of recount. All right, fast forward to 2000. This is the one I think that is the freshest in everyone's mind, the hanging chads. And so this was Bush v. Gore. And what was different about this one is the Supreme Court ultimately decided the election. So walk us through that. And then what was the decision-making process behind the Supreme Court's decision? Sure. Well, there's a lot to talk about about Florida. There was the butterfly ballots, which some people may remember, which you know might have been consequential, but you couldn't really sue over that because... Uh, it was a, a poor ballot design, and the voters voted the way they did. Uh, so Florida had a lot of problems. The one that ended up getting litigated was the hanging chads, as you say. And these were the punch card ballots that voters had to you know, push these uh, little pieces of paper to get the light to be able to go through so the machines could read them. Anyway, there were thousands and thousands of these questionable ballots that the machines couldn't read but but maybe had a valid vote on it. And yet the margin of victory for Bush was certified at 537. So, and yet there were you know tens of thousands uh, of questionable ballots. So this went to court, first in state court, and the state courts authorized a recount, a statewide recount. But the problem was different localities within Florida were using different standards for evaluating these hanging chads. Some said as long as there was a little pinprick through the chad, it would count. Others said you didn't even need that as long as it was dimpled, it would count. Others said the chad had to be swinging to count. And the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately says that violates federal equal protection. There has to be a, uh, a statewide uniform standard in order to meet the concept of equal protection because all voters in the election, regardless of whether they live in Miami or Palm Beach or Fort Lauderdale, they should be governed by the same standard for counting of ballots. So that's how the Supreme Court got involved and, uh, as you say, you know, came up with its answer and then refuses to allow for any further recounting and shut the process down. I want to fast forward to today. And so, you know, in the course of, uh, you know, researching the history of all these close elections, you know, I came through a couple of uh, you know, commonplace elements uh, back in those days that I compared to today. And so, you know, the first on my mind was, you know, polarized populace. And so, you know, I saw that in the history and obviously applies today. I think it's a very contentious time between the political parties. Um, I also noticed uh, some sweeping changes to political structures. And so, you know, obviously there's been some rumors floated about and 
Sometimes it's been confirmed about packing the court, the notion of whether or not to include D.C. uh, with senatorial representation or whether or not to add Puerto Rico as another state to the United States. Um, In addition, there's there's a major event that accompanies, you know, so historically it was a civil war, uh, it was a civil rights movement, but now we've got a pandemic. We've got the coronavirus. And then the other thing that I noticed that seemed to transcend through time was voter fraud, or at least allegations of voter fraud and, uh, you know, a difficulty in counting the votes. But I wanted to kick that back to you for your thoughts, you know, as you observe, you know, the history getting into today, have we, do we ever learn our lesson politically speaking? Well, yes, you know, we have improved our system over time. I worry about backsliding um, because the full sweep of American history shows that the 20th century tended to handle these close elections better than the 19th century. So that is improvement. But, you know, what is going to be the legacy of the 21st century? Right now, I think you're completely correct that the hyperpolarization that we have now, just the, the, you know, the all-out contestation is dangerous because ultimately democracy depends on a sense of fair play and taking turns, right? Sometimes one party prevails, sometimes the other party. The system has to work to let the voters decide what the voters want, which means the parties, the politicians have to take turns and let each other side take turns. And there doesn't seem to be a desire right now to let the other side take a turn because both parties think the stakes are so high they want to keep power or get power because they don't want the other side to win. Well, speaking of voters getting what they want, uh, you know, we often uh, see this, uh, you know, recalls, automated or automatic recalls. And so there's these conditions where the election is too close to call on election night. They got to go through a recount. So what conditions exist there? I mean, I know it's different from state to state, but what's kind of the the typical condition that if we see it like we know they're probably going to go into recount? Well, it's got to be really close in every state. I mean, as you say, it varies state to state, but there's a percentage. Usually it's a half a percent. Sometimes it's a quarter percent between the top two candidates to trigger that automatic recount. You know, I think this year, potentially, if it's close, we can look for the possibility of disputes over the absentee ballots, the vote by mail. That's been such a subject of controversy sort of all summer or all year long. And obviously, voters are relying on vote by mail because of the pandemic. So, you know, if it's really close, how the system handles absentee ballots, you know, could be the focal point. Kind of getting into today's climate, um, you know, in terms of contesting election and people remember Bush v. Gore, just like you said, they kind of laid the gauntlet down with mail-in uh, ballots. And so, you know, there's definitely absentee ballots. There's some history there, some precedent, but it's never been done at this scale. And obviously they're doing this to help with the coronavirus. But, you know, when you look at our, our political climate today, what does a contested election look like? What can we expect to see if we can't determine who wins on election night? Well, I think we'll see litigation in the courts at the state level in the battleground states that would make a difference on getting to 270 electoral votes. You know, if Bush versus Gore is the model, that litigation will reach a conclusion one way or the other. And then, you know, what was key is that Al Gore accepted defeat based on the U.S. Supreme Court decision. You know, what would be more dangerous is if whichever candidate lost in the recount process decided not to take no for an answer, if you will, and try to take the fight all the way to Congress. That would make a dispute look more like that 1876 Hayes versus Tilden, because, you know, a fight in Congress just lasts longer. Congress doesn't get involved until January, and the acrimony snowballs and accelerates, and it just gets more and more contentious and more and more dangerous, because we need a president on January 20th. 
for Inauguration Day. So, you know, I hope it doesn't take that turn, but the risk is that if a, if a dispute spins out of control, it goes all the way to Congress to January. We don't have much time, but I got a couple more questions for you before we close it out. And so the first one's a loaded question. And so what guidance do we have from the Constitution on how to handle contested elections? Not enough. The 12th Amendment is, you know, the, the constitutional provision, but it, it says very little. It just says the vote shall be counted using the passive voice that my sixth grade English teacher said, don't use if you want to be clear. So the guidance comes from a statute that Congress wrote in 1887 after the Hayes-Tilden dispute to try to fill in the details so that we can have both the Constitution and the statute to help us through this. Well, to help everybody ease their anxiety during <laughs> during election night, uh, what are your predictions for the outcome here? Not not in so much the president, but when do you think reasonably we'll know who the president is? Well, it really depends on what the early returns are. It could you know go in different ways. I, I think the key to understanding this is that if we have decisiveness by the time the electoral college meets in December, then we can say that the system worked given its own purposes, right? I mean, the whole goal of us voting in November is to have the Electoral College work properly in December. So it may be a bit of a roller coaster the month of November, but if we come to a successful roller coaster ride, no derailment, and December goes well, then we should be thankful for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor. It was really nice having you on the air with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And one more time with the title of your book and where can people find it? Yeah, it's called Presidential Elections and Majority Rule. It's Oxford University Press, and it is available on Amazon and other booksellers like that. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll cite our sources for this episode on LegalTalkNetwork.com. And a big thank you to our producer, Molly McDonough, and our amazing production team. They're the best. And before we close it out, I want to give a couple of hat tips, a few hat tips to some publications out there. One, Smithsonian Magazine. There was an article by Robert Spiel. It was titled, Four Times the Results of a Presidential Election Were Contested. The next one, Time, an article by Olivia B. Waxman. Not every U.S. presidential race has been decided on election day. Here's what to know about a America's history of contested elections. And of course, Wikipedia, there was a great article there, 1876 United States presidential election. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about the history of our contested elections, I highly recommend those sources. We'll put them in the show notes. And that's all the time we have for today. But uh, America out there, go out and vote. That's our right. And uh, make it a good one, whoever you vote for. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank you.